No pilot's plane tales. The aerodynamics of death. It was 1973. A keen and eager air cadet was at a local flying school reveling in the opportunity he had been given. He was well on his way to completing a flying scholarship, which would give him 20 hours of training and put him on the road to his private pilot's licence. There was a drama unfolding around Fair Oaks Airfield that morning, and a line of gleaming fire engines and ambulances were lined up on the prairie track. A short while ago, a Cessna Centurion, a high-wing, single-engine, six-seater light aircraft, got airborne out of an informal strip in Ireland bound for Fair Oaks. When the pilot tried to take off, he noticed it was a bit slow to accelerate, but continued with the parking brake on. The wet and slippery grass had allowed the aircraft to accelerate to flying speed, but only just, and the retractable undercarriage clipped the dry stone wall on the boundary. The damage was restricted to the retraction system, but now the main gear, which usually came up, turned and folded back into the fuselage, was now dangling down, useless and waving in the wind. There had been plenty of time to arrange the extra safety services which now attended the little country airfield, and as the damaged aircraft approached, the air cadet and his friends crowded around a radio, listening to the conversation. A senior instructor was giving advice to the pilot on how to lock his gear into position, but to no avail. He was committed to an emergency landing. Everyone watched with bated breath as he approached over the hedge and lined up on the grass strip. A few feet up, he turned off the fuel to the engine. The prop kicked once or twice before it stopped turning. As the drooping wheels touched the grass, they folded neatly back into the fuselage recesses and with just the nose wheel and flat bottom to rest on, the aircraft settled down safely, sliding to a graceful stop. A smattering of applause was quickly drowned by the sirens of the fire engines as they raced after the aircraft, but there was nothing for them to do. There was little damage and no injuries, so after a few cups of tea, the firemen sloped off back to their slightly more mundane world of domestic fires and cats up trees. Back at the airfield, not much was happening. After all the excitement, everyone had gone back inside out of the dreary weather. It would be a while before the runway was clear for use, but in the club next door, an eager young instructor and his brand new pupil were about to head off for a first lesson, a 30-minute experience flight, in the wood and canvas wonder called a condor. At the sound of a starting engine, a few of the cadets wandered outside to watch. With the main runway still closed, the radio-less condor taxied out to the only available strip, a short, uphill, crosswind runway, that had an awkward line of trees fifty feet off the end and an even higher tree-lined ridge beyond that. The faded windsock flapped a bit, but it was showing mainly a crosswind with a little tailwind. Sadly, the air traffic controller could have told him that a more appropriate runway, adjacent to the accident aircraft, was now available, 
but without a radio there was no way of contacting him. The controller glanced at the oldest lamp beside him and contemplated what he might have been able to signal had it been working. The instructor started his takeoff, but about halfway down the runway he closed the throttle and stopped. That got people's attention. They watched with more interest as he taxied back for another go, this time putting his flaps down. The little engine revved and he gathered speed. About two-thirds down the runway, the bright yellow machine got airborne, but it certainly wasn't climbing well and seemed to be quite slow. It cleared the first line of trees safely, but the nose came up even further as the ridge approached. The wings started to rock, and then with the horrifying certainty of a disaster unfolding, the left wing dropped rapidly and the aircraft span out of view behind the trees. The crunch and subsequent woof of igniting fuel was clear in the shocked silence that fell over the little audience. A rusty old siren started to whine, and whereas only an hour or two before a line of shiny fire engines had been available, now the usual dirty old red Land Rover with its 30-gallon foam dispenser chugged into life. Along with a small crowd, the cadets sprinted the few hundred yards that separated them from the flaming wreckage. The aircraft was hardly recognisable, as the canvas had already burned away when the fuel tank burst, covering what remained of the cockpit with flaming aviation fuel. Nobody could get close, and they just watched as the foam did its best to extinguish the fire. A local helicopter had landed close, and the pilot stood nearby with his little hand fire extinguisher and a horrified expression on his face. The irony of what little they could do now, when only an hour or two ago there had been safety services in plenty on hand, escaped no one. When P.J. Barden, the Inspector of Accidents, raised his reports, he decided that the pilot's use of flap and abnormally low airspeed in order to clear the first obstruction on his flight path placed him in a position such that he had insufficient height, airspeed or rate of climb to clear the succeeding obstacle. The pilot subsequently attempted an avoiding turn whilst flying with insufficient airspeed. The aircraft stalled and entered an incipient spin to the left at too low an altitude for recovery. Many years later I relived this experience when I watched a windjeel, a piston provost to some, crash in front of me as I taxied him from a sortie. The aircraft had been held off while I led my four-ship of F-18s in for a run-and-break to the circuit, and once we were on the ground, he recommenced a practice force landing. Finding himself a bit high at low key, he decided to fly an orbit to lose height. Halfway round, he stalled, and, in a heartbeat, the heavy metal tail-dragger flicked into a spin and hit the ground. Being the only squadron flight safety officer on hand, 
I soon found myself crawling through the wreckage, showing the firemen where the dead crew's survival pyrotechnics were likely to be, and smelling the same sickly stench of burning that I knew from Fair Oaks some fifteen years earlier. We all contemplated the sad loss of the pilot and his airman passenger with the same feelings of helplessness that we had experienced only a few weeks before when another of these aircraft had been lost in a low-speed turn. A low-level navigation error had put the aircraft into the wrong valley and the ground rose too steeply for the pilot to climb out. He tried to turn around and escape, but his speed was too low to cope with the turn, and he also span his aircraft into the ground. Some 60% of light aircraft accidents occur during takeoff or landing, many in similar circumstances. But what is it that prevents recovery even for well-trained pilots? For the answer, we must delve into the world of aerodynamics and how a wing stalls. For the wing to develop lift, it needs a strong, smooth and brisk flow of air travelling over it. We know that it's the curved surface on the top of the wing that accelerates the flow, thereby reducing its pressure, that gives us most of the lift we need to oppose the weight of the aircraft. The more curved the upper surface, the more lift we generate, which is why we change the shape of a wing when we slow down to land by putting down flaps and slats to enhance that curve and compensate for the reduction in speed that we need for a landing. The other thing we do is to increase the angle of the wing in relation to the airflow so that the air has to make a longer journey up and over the wing, again increasing the lift. However, eventually that very helpful airflow starts to struggle and when we ask it to do too much it begins to give up, breaking away from the surface of the wing. The transition from smooth into turbulent flow starts at the trailing edge and if we continue to raise the nose, increasing the angle of the wing, it moves forward, eventually covering enough of the wing to lose lift. The wing stalls. The fix is relatively simple. Just reduce that wing angle by pitching forward until the airflow adheres again. We can unstall at almost any speed, but the wing will only start to produce useful quantities of lift again when we get the airflow moving fast enough to support the weight of the aircraft. So if we were at low speed, it means accelerating by sacrificing height and increasing engine power. The more engine power we can obtain, the less height we will have to lose in the recovery. Catching a stall early can result in very little height loss. But it's often not a simple stall that kills so many pilots. It's what happens just after. The stalling characteristics of an aircraft can be very benign. The chances are that the trainer that most of us started in was designed with that in mind. They were forgiving aircraft that gave plenty of warning and didn't bite us at a stall. The wings probably had a little twist in them, called washout, that decreases the wing's angle towards the tip, so that a stall starts near the wing root, making it more benign and allowing some aileron control. 
Not every aircraft is like that, not even every trainer. In order to improve performance in some areas, an aircraft's design is often changed in others. It's all a compromise. The battle against drag and fuel consumption, the need for high speed and high cruise levels, the novel, the easy to construct, the just plain stupid, will often result in a design that stalls badly. An impending low-speed stall should signal itself clearly to the pilot, but in some aircraft those warnings may be easy to ignore, may happen too fast or be too unpredictable and happen unevenly. It's likely that one wing will stall before the other, so will drop, increasing the angle of the air going over it and deepening the stall. The other wing will rise, reducing the angle, and it will continue to produce some lift. With the aircraft rolling rapidly, the nose will drop, and any attempt to raise it will exacerbate the situation. The drag on the stalled wing will be higher than the other, causing a yaw in that direction, and the aircraft will start to auto-rotate. The aircraft is in an incipient spin that, if left uncorrected, may well develop into a full spin. Whatever is done, if it happens at low altitude, the height for recovery will generally be more than is available, and the result inevitable. So what's my advice? Well, don't just use your aircraft as a means of transport and only go from A to B. If you get to your destination with a bit of extra fuel, why not practice a few circuits and remind yourself how to do those odd approaches that you might get after an emergency, a flapless circuit, a low-level circuit, and any others that your type might need. Spend time learning your aircraft's less glamorous flying characteristics, particularly if they're a bit nasty. Regularly practice stalls and stall recovery in different configurations so that you learn those vital clues and the recovery actions become instinctive. When flying to a runway that is longer than you need, why not add a little speed above your normal landing speed, particularly if the wind there is a little unpredictable. It gives you a bit more of a safety margin. And of course, be careful out there. So, like Carl Horton's experience at Oshkosh that we heard about on the last APG show, try to make sure you are just the one watching and not in the driving seat. <laughs>